Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast from Northern Seminary. This week's episode is part of a special summer series discussing the stories of women found in Scripture. For this week's conversation, we are joined by Dr. Lynn Coick, Dr. Carmen Imes, and Serene Musselman. Join us as we debunk common myths, explore important themes, and discuss the relevance of these women's stories for our faith today. Hey there, Alabaster Jar listeners. This week we are continuing our special summer series where we are looking at the stories of women in the Old Testament and the New. Once again, we are joined by Dr. Lynn Coick, our host, as well as Dr. Carmen Imes. I hope that you have been enjoying this series so far. If you've missed the last few episodes, be sure to go back and take a listen. And this week's episode is sure to be a fun one because the theme is unknown women of the Bible. And you may have noticed that we have been starting off these episodes by busting some myths. But Carmen, are there any myths to bust about these women's stories if we don't actually know much about them? (laughs) Yeah, I, I think probably the problem is we're starting at zero with the two women that I'm bringing today are Rizpah and Zipporah. Uh, Rizpah's from the book of 2 Samuel and Zipporah is from Exodus, probably uh, some of our listeners have heard of Zipporah as the wife of Moses. Um, there's a there's a definitely a sense of her mystery. Uh, there's a strange incident in Exodus chapter 4 that baffles readers. If you've done a Bible read through and you've gotten to Exodus 4, it's one of the trickiest passages, I think, in the whole Old Testament to kind of to, to wrap our minds around. Um where but so fortunately you're going to solve it for us today right isn't I, that it how much yeah. time do we have <laughs> I, I, I would i would love to solve it for you and i'm i'm pretty passionate about the rizpa story because i yeah. i was going to be on another podcast to somebody wanted help with rizpa and i thought or with Zipporah, and i thought i better i better study this and figure it out and i do think uh i i i think this story makes a lot of sense in its literary context but it takes some time to unpack so i'll i'll do my best in sh- in a short Form. So in, in Exodus 2, Zipporah is the one that Moses meets at the well and marries, as that's always what happens when a patriarch meets a woman at the well, she, he marries her, except when we get to John chapter 4. Yeah, um, totally different there. We're a, in another testament. A so. little bit different, but maybe yeah. there's supposed to be a resonance. I don't know. Um, in Exodus chapter 4, God has called Moses to go back to Egypt and deliver the people. And Moses takes his wife Zipporah and their two sons and he puts them on a donkey and they start back to Egypt. And God says to him um, that he's going, what he's supposed to announce to Pharaoh uh, in chapter four, verse 22, say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. So this is a, a kind of looking ahead a, uh, looking ahead to a f- future time when God already anticipates that Pharaoh's going to say no and that there's going to be disastrous consequences to that. Um, Pharaoh's refusal to let Israel go is going to result in the death of his son. But the very next verse says that at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. And this is just a bizarre moment. Like, why would the God who commissioned Moses then try to kill him? And it says, but Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. 
Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. And at that time, she said bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. So there it is. There's the Zipporah story. And maybe if there is a myth, those who've read this um, have often heard her with a, a hint of disdain in her voice. Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. Like, I can't believe you made me do this bloody deed to our children. Like, you and your God. It seems like she's upset because then she disappears from the story until chapter 18 when her father brings her to Moses at Sinai. So so it seems like she must not have gone to Egypt all the way. Maybe she turned around and went home at this point. Uh, but I don't know that it's fair to, to put disdain in her voice. I think I think what's happening is that she is recognizing the need for this ritual and she performs it. And what she says is a ritual statement saying, you're a blood relative now to me, so that the circumcision is effective. It has effect efficacious words as part of the ritual. And she's the daughter of a priest. Maybe that has a, a role to play in her, her knowledge of what to do in this situation. However she knows what to do, she correctly diagnoses that the problem, the reason why Yahweh is seeking to kill Moses is because he has failed to circumcise his sons or because he's failed to be circumcised himself. There's a lot of ambiguities in the story. There's a lot of pronouns that are unclear. Even the word Moses in verse uh, 24, the Lord met Moses. The Hebrew just says him there. The Lord met him and was about to kill him. She cut off her son's foreskin and touched his feet with it. Whose feet? The son's feet, Moses' feet, the angel's feet? Like, it's it's. there's a lot of ambiguity around this verse, but I think what's going on at base is there's some kind of non-compliance with Moses. He's supposed to go back and lead the people out of Egypt. And when they celebrate the, the Passover, the first Passover, that's their sign that they're part of the people of God. They're trusting in Yahweh and in his deliverance. But Moses himself has not brought his family into the covenant. So that puts him on the wrong side of God's anger in Egypt. God's just announced, I'm going to kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. If Moses himself has not circumcised his own sons, then he he's in the Egypt category rather than in the Israelite category. And so Zipporah correctly recognizes if we're going back into danger zone, and if God is going to pick a fight with Pharaoh, then you better make sure you're on God's team and that circumcision is the sign of joining God's team. So I think Zipporah is an, an amazing, bold uh person. She knows uh, what action to take, and she takes it. Um, and and similarly, we have the Rizpah story in 2 Samuel 21. She's our other Old Testament figure. She's a little-known uh, concubine of Saul. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 7, I'll just turn there a minute, um, we get our first statement about her. Now Saul had a concubine named Rizpah, daughter of Aiah, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why did you sleep with my father's concubine? So this is after the death of Saul, and Saul's son Ishbosheth has become king on, in his stead, but not over all of Israel because some of the tribes are following David. And Abner, one of the commanders, is trying to move up the chain of command. He's trying to assert his own strength. Um, in the dynasty, 
and he does so by sleeping with his father's his dead father's concubine, which is just kind of standard practice in the ancient Near East. This is not something God endorses. It's just how how it happened. And so she, she, here's a woman who was not a full-fledged wife to begin with, who was then sexually misused as a form of conquest after her husband's death. And so she's endangered. And then later, um, there's this issue in 2 Samuel 21. It's a fascinating story that I think personally has some really interesting resonances for today. So we'll have to turn there to kind of get our bearings. It says, during the reign of David, 2 Samuel 21, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, it's on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It's because he put the Gibeonites to death. So this is hearkening back to Joshua chapter 9, when Joshua and the people are coming into the land and they're told not to make a treaty with anyone living in the promised land, but the Gibeonites trick them and pretend they're from far away. And so they make a treaty with them. But Saul did not honor that treaty hundreds of years later. He put the Gibeonites to death. And it's so fascinating to me that Saul's dead now. We're, not, we're on to King David, but there is still a famine, and God says it's because Saul didn't honor the covenant with the Gibeonites. There, the nation is still reaping the consequences of an unkept promise of a previous generation. I think that's really fascinating, a kind of generational consequences for sin. So just to, just to bring this home, people say today like, oh, slavery ended a long time ago, or segregation ended a long time ago. Could we still be suffering from the effects of our grandparents' and great-grandparents' sins against, uh, against others? I think it's possible this passage kind of points to that possibility. So the, exactly. king, yeah. so the king summons the Gibeonites. He says, what do you want me to do to make this right? And they, they request to put to death the last descendants of Saul who are alive. Um, they want seven male descendants. And um, that includes, I think, two of Rizpah's sons. So they took Armani and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Aya's daughter Rizpah, whom she had born to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter Merib, who she had born. And, and they hand those over to the Gibeonites, who kill them and expose their bodies on a hill. So all sem- seven of them die. And it, we're told in verse 10, Rizpah, daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. And from the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on, on the bodies, she did not let the birds touch them by day or the wild animals by night. She spent months, like six months, outside watching, t- keeping vigil over the dead bodies of her sons and her nephews in this field. And it's fascinating to me that when David hears of this, he's like, oh, we should bury these bodies. Finally, the news gets to David about that. So they bury the bodies, including the bones of Saul and Jonathan. And then we're told in verse 14, after that, God answered prayer in behalf of the land. So there's a problem at the beginning of the chapter with a famine that has to do with Saul not keeping a promise. But David's way of dealing with the promise and trying to bring justice cause more injustice that actually is not resolved until Rizpah's vigil is paid attention to, and um, and then God will hear prayers once the bodies are all buried. So I, I see Rizpah as this heroic figure 
who refuses to let injustice remain. She reminds me of the survivors of abuse in the in the SBC who've been really pu public about holding public attention to this issue until it gets resolved. Um, they're not willing to be silent until the right thing is is done. And the same thing is true here with Rizpa. She's not willing to be silent. She's not willing to just shut up and go home. And so I think she she serves as a model for um, for the the long work of calling attention to things that are wrong in society. Oh, that is so powerful. Carmen, thank you for sharing those powerful stories of these two women and helping us learn more about them, their courage and their mm. commitment to justice. Yeah, it's very powerful and a great reminder of how many overlooked stories in the Bible there are. There's a wealth of knowledge there. Mm -hmm. So thank you. <laughs> Lynn, uh, who are the two women from the New Testament that you're sharing with us today? Um, Yodia and Syntyche. Syntyche, they're um, in Philippians. Uh, chapter four, and they um, we know that they are co-workers of Paul's. Um, they and he enjoins them um, to he pleads with them to be of the same mind in the Lord. Um, so one of the interesting things about these two women is that they are named uh, in his letters, and Paul doesn't tend to name specific people too often, although he, you know, we know uh, Sosthenes, we know Timothy, he will name some of his uh, co-workers, but he, he doesn't necessarily do it in this way of uh, presenting um, a challenge to them uh, to be of the same mind. The other piece is that that phrase, to be of the same mind, Paul also uses it the beginning of chapter two when he asks all of the church um, to to be united with uh, that because they are united with Christ. If they find any comfort from His love, any uh, common sharing in the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded or of the same mind. And so the the call to the whole community is also then telescoped to these two women be of the same mind, which suggests that they played a very important role in guiding the, uh, the community. Another piece to note is that at the beginning of the letter to the Philippians, Paul mentions two groups along with the saints. So all the saints are all the holy people there in Philippi, Paul's writing to them. And then he says, together with the overseers and the deacons. And he doesn't use that phrase. He doesn't address leaders like this, episcopoi and diaconoi. He doesn't mention them elsewhere in any greetings. So people put together that interesting addition to his typical greeting and this unusual mention of these two women as co-workers. And people think, oh, so are they uh, deacons or are they overseers? Uh, and I think the, that most commentators are uh, comfortable with the idea that at least they, these two women represent um, these categories, whether they are episcopoi or diaconoi, we don't, uh, it's, it's hard to say which ones they, uh, they may be. What we do know, what Paul tells us, is that they are co-workers, 
uh, that their names are in the book of life. I mean, these women, even though they are struggling to uh, be unified in uh, in their ministry together, they nevertheless are absolutely saved. They're not Paul's enemies. He does mention sometimes enemies and there it's clear well he even says earlier in philippians you know that there are those people who are enemies of the cross of christ these women are not that at all they definitely they're his co-workers he values them so it's unclear what their difference is um it's probably though in the matter of practical ministry because if it was theological paul could just tell us you know pretty simply what it is so when you start unpacking that, you think, well, what what could it what could it be? Were, did they have differences on um, alms giving? Right, that's a very important piece of um, piety in the ancient world how you how you give to the poor. So did they have differences on that? Something that occurred to me recently is I wonder if. Yodia is Jewish and Syntyche is Gentile, and they are struggling because Yodia, we do have some Jews who are Jewish women named that uh, at, at this time, but I mean, Syntyche being named for the goddess TK or fate is not something you'd think a Jewish family would do. Uh, we have no evidence that they did. So what if it's a Jew, uh, a Jewish leader and a Gentile leader and they're, they're trying to make this community work together. And we know Paul spends a lot of time talking about how in Christ he's made the two one, one new anthropos. He talks about that in chapter two of Ephesians. The Jew and the Gentile now together are one. He spends a lot of time in the last couple of chapters of Romans, again, talking through that. Some people consider every day the same, others uh, treat one day, i.e. Sabbath, as more holy. Well, whatever, just get along. Some people have uh, convictions about certain foods. Others will eat anything. Well, the point is, get along. The kingdom of God is about righteousness. It's not about having your own way. Even when these things, like having your own way, like resting on Sabbath, is deeply ingrained in your understanding what it means to be a faithful follower of God. So these are not just like, um, oh, minor, uh, they're, they're not minor habits or likes or dislikes that are regional. You know, do you put ketchup on your hot dog? Well, yes, you do if you're from Pittsburgh like me. No, you don't if you're from Chicago. It's not that kind of thing. Mm. These are deeply ingrained habits of piety. And Paul is saying, in Christ, we've got to figure this out together so that we think of the other before ourselves. And I think that's what he's asking these two women uh, to do that he mentions here in chapter four of Philippians. And it matters to Paul that people walk in step with each other. It really matters. And so the, I think that's the call here that these women can... Uh, can represent for us is the importance as we do ministry with others that we are of the same mind so that the unity of Christ that is a miracle it is a miracle that happens only in the Holy Spirit can be visible to uh, to the outside world 
Well, thank you both for taking us into these women's stories. Clearly, they have so much to teach us. And Glenn, you started to touch on there at the end, some practical applications. So as we wrap up our conversation, uh, Carmen, if you want to start off for us, any um takeaways that you would like to leave our listeners with as we um, just sort of begin to explore the stories of these women that are typically pretty unknown. So uh, yeah, Mm -hmm. anything you'd like to call out for us? Yeah, I think I've already pointed to the way that RISPA holds public attention until justice is done. And so my word to listeners would be just be, don't give up. Um, if you see something that's not right and you might be the only voice calling for a change, uh, hang in there, be faithful to that. And at some point there comes a tipping point and these tipping points come, um, at, at various points. I mean, I already mentioned the Southern Baptist Convention and the, the, um, recognition of abuse. It seemed like the tipping point came last summer as the convention met and the messengers voted. Um, to have an in- independent investigation done, that was an important tipping point where the public opinion swayed in favor of addressing this issue. I think in terms of racial injustice, the tipping point may have been the death of George Floyd that sort of galvanized um, our society to address the issue of racism in a more widespread way than it had already been um, galvanized. And a, a lot of, I, I've seen a number of writers use the RISPA story as a, um, as an analogy or seen an analogy in, um, black mothers today who's, who are losing their children and who are, um, wanting to, to draw attention to the dead bodies of their sons in the streets. So you th- think of, you know, all the different stories that we have in recent years of, um, black men gunned down in the streets and, and the mothers are saying, look, this is not right. We need to do something. So if, if, if you're seeing something that's not right, don't give up. Um, continue to be that voice, even if you're alone for a time. Thank you, Carmen. Lynn, anything to add to that as we wrap up our conversation? Amen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that yes. uh, so well said. Mm. And praise the Lord that uh, we're talking even about RISPA now. I mm. I wonder, you know, it certainly doesn't put David or those uh, people in uh, in authority doesn't put them in a good light. And it's so tempting to want to protect the image of the institution or the family or whatever mm. it is. And the mm-hmm. cost is so high. Mm. Uh, so RISPA encourages us to. Like you say, stay, stay at it. Stay the course. Um, yeah. That's right. Because yeah. uh, God's justice will win out. Yeah. And I think Zipporah is different. It's not like we can look to Zipporah for like a model for how to jump in and do the right ritual. <laughs> you know, like oh, she's the, she's the Girl Scout. She's, she's prepared. She's, she's got girl, her Swiss she's Army got her knife, flint knife and, you know, uh, and she's ready to go. And I just, leave home I just, without it. I love that. I was but, a brownie. But I do so. think, I do think with Zipporah and with your New Testament women, Yodia and Syntyche, um, there's this really interesting, like literary function. Like when we, when I stopped to pay attention to Zipporah, I found all sorts of, um, literary design things going on in Exodus that helped me track with the overall structure of the book. And I didn't even get to unpack those, but you showed us how um, Yodi and Syntyche may be even hinted at in the opening of Paul's letter to the Philippians and how like 
paying attention to these named women, even though we don't know much about them, can help us crack the code on the meaning of the whole letter. So I think that's maybe an encouragement to our listeners not to just breeze over the names, but to slow down and to linger with them until until we get to know their stories and until we can imagine more of them, because it will help us see the whole counsel of God. Thank you so much, Lynn and Carmen and listeners. Thank you for joining us on this journey throughout the summer as we are looking at these stories. And if you have been following along with Lynn's uh, course on seminary now, this particular week is somewhat of a bonus episode because the stories of these women are so little known that they actually didn't make it into Lynn's course. So we hope that you have enjoyed the conversation. I do want to say, though, that on Seminary Now, if you feel a challenge to dig deeper into these themes of justice and reconciliation and redemption that have come out in the stories of the women that we talked about today, there are quite a few courses on Seminary Now that deal with these themes and plenty of opportunities for you to dig deeper into those conversations. Uh, Join us back here next week as we continue this series. And thank you, Carmen and Lynn. You've been listening to another episode of the Alabaster Jar. If you enjoyed this week's conversation, please subscribe, share, and plan to join us again next week as we continue this special summer series. To explore further the topics and stories discussed in this week's episode, check out Lynn's Seminary Now course on Women in the New Testament and Carmen's Seminary Now course on Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. We've included links to both of those courses in today's episode description. 